the premillennial understanding of uh, contemporary events was that evil was rampant in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had taken many forms uh, come out of the tragedy of the French Revolution. Uh, the institutions of church and state were being questioned. Uh, there was violence in the countryside and in the cities. Uh, there was the rise of a dictator like Napoleon, uh, who to many observers was the Antichrist. Um, so how were people to be rescued from, from all this? They could no longer rely on human agency to, to solve these multiple problems. All people's desire was put into divine intervention. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever, wherever you're tuning into the Doth Protest Too Much podcast. Um, today, we have a great guest. Uh, Dr. Thomas Power is joining us, um, prof- Professor Emeritus of Church History uh, from Wycliffe College. Uh, Dr. Power received his PhD from Trinity College in Dublin, and uh, he is originally from Ireland, uh, but has been in Toronto in, for some time. And he still teaches courses, from what I understand, church history at Wycliffe, as well as uh, serves in as the theological librarian at Wycliffe. And he's here to talk to us about uh, millennialism, that is uh, the uh, uh, basically apocalyptic uh, an eschatological theology, and uh, we some of his areas of expertise are Christianity in Ireland, um, where he is from, uh, as well as just church history, more broadly speaking, in uh, Britain and Ireland. And he's authored and or served as editor for several publications, uh, including two forthcoming books, I believe, and Dr. Power could correct me on this, but I believe he, they have they are around the corner, so to speak, of coming out. One is 1825, The Apocalypse in Ireland, and the other is Trauma and Survival in the Contemporary Church, Historical and Missional Responses in the Anglican Tradition, where he's contributed a chapter two and served as co-editor for. Are those books, uh, they're coming out soon, from what I understand, Dr. Powell? Uh, yes, the Trauma and Survival in, in the Contemporary Church has been published uh, last year. So that is available for people uh, to look at. Okay. Uh, I'm currently working on the second title you mentioned uh, and uh, what you uh, listed there. Uh, the title may change, but basically it's about a prediction, uh, about a prophecy about the destruction of Protestantism in you know, issues associated with that, how how the prediction arose, how it played out, mm-hmm. long-term effects of it. Okay. And you cut that's, out for you cut out, out for, next year. You cut out for about 
three seconds there, but you said it was kind of the prediction, the feeling that Protestantism would end in Ireland. You were saying prediction, prediction about the destruction of Protestantism uh, in Ireland in 1825. Okay, and I, I know you sent me a, a chapter from the the other book, the Trauma and Survival, uh, to read beforehand, and which I found interesting, and I, I do plan later on in the show to ask you uh, a few questions about that, um, as I, I have a feeling it may tie into uh, that other topic you were just talking about as well. So, um, so you come from Ireland, and I'm, uh, and uh, like I said, I'm going to ask you some questions uh, uh, more particularly about later 19th century um, uh, apocalypticism in, in, in the Church of Ireland later in the show. Um, but uh, so you come from Ireland, and your a lot of your writings, I think, are they clearly demonstrate, especially in an example like Ireland and its recent history, how all the different currents, whether it's the political current, economic current, societal currents, religious currents of of the country, all really converge. They flow into each other, um, and of course, you know that's what we tend to see in the history of Christianity in general, and pretty much any uh, chapter of history. Uh, but I think you know your writings, from what I've read of Ireland, are kind of uh, really clearly demonstrate how all these come together. So I'm curious, as we're talking about apocalypticism or apocalyptic thought in Christianity um, today, this is a topic you've been devoted to and have written on and taught on. Did this interest in uh, apocalyptic or apocalypticism, uh, was it an interest that kind of came along the way, so to speak, like did it arise out of other interests you may have had, or is it something that you were always especially drawn toward? Well, Drew, uh, it's not an, uh, an abiding interest. It arose along the way from my teaching and research interests, which, as you said in your, in your introduction, have to do with the history of Christianity in Britain and Ireland, particularly in the late 18th and early 19th century. Um, and in particular, I became interested in the impact of the French Revolution of 1789 on Christian belief on denominational alignments and political configurations. And the more I delved into it, I discovered that the French Revolution led to an upsurge of interest in millennialism. And I found that curious because we typically think of the French Revolution in political terms. Uh, and, and from that, Curiosity. I was led to uh, probe a little more into the whole history, the rise of millennialism as a phenomenon in uh, Western Christian history up to that point. What were its origins? You know, uh, how did it develop over time from the early church right through the Middle Ages into the Reformation and into the 17th century and into the 18th century Enlightenment? So, in essence, I was interested in what preceded uh, 1789, the French Revolution, in terms of the growth and development of uh, millennialism. But secondly, then, I was also naturally interested in the subsequent history of millennialism after the French Revolution, uh, up to the present day. And it led me to focus on particular questions uh, uh, in Ireland's case, obviously, denominational uh, considerations were uppermost. 
Uh, and from that, uh, you know, what, what was the sectarian dimension to apocalypticism? Uh, and how might it be associated with subsidiary topics like trauma and immigration? Mm -hmm. uh, we typically associate um, apocalyptic uh, fervor with some element of trauma. Of its nature, it is a traumatic thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it takes many forms. Uh, I was particularly interested uh, in how it stimulated uh, immigration from Ireland uh, in the 1820s and 30s. And we can talk about that some more. Yeah. Well, um, it, it's funny because I'm almost woeful. I was for a long time, very woefully unfamiliar with uh, really the French Revolution and the history of that and Napoleon. I know Napoleon is such a household. If there's any historical name that's household, um, it's Napoleon. And, and now of me being in Louisiana the past several years, there's a you know, there's a lot of, uh, you get a lot of French in the school, like the school I teach at, there is a, that, that French connection, I guess, um, mm -hmm. is much more apparent than where I, from Michigan, where I was originally from. But, um, but of course my own doctoral research has led me into the study of 19th century theology in Germany. And of course that getting into Prussia, uh, you know, the, then the Napoleon's forces occupying Prussia, I've had, I've, I've had to, you know, I've had to basically uh, study it at some point. So it's, it's kind of new to me recently and I find it very fascinating. Um, so, but still kind of learning about the French revolution myself, was it because it was such a, um, it was such a traumatic event in his tra traumatic chapter in history that it uh, really, uh, was the impetus behind uh, a, a new phenomenon, a, a focus uh, now on end times, where there, where it probably had been quiet, at least for some time since the Enlightenment. Um, does that? Does that? Yeah, I mean, the the, the revolution, as I said, is typically uh, viewed in political terms, but it was again, I use the word trauma. Um, the French Revolution traumatized uh, Western Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, because here you had uh, the overthrow of the institutions of state uh, in, in, in a, a very violent uh, way. Uh, you also had the displacement of established Christianity, uh, you know, with, with the French Revolution. So uh, it was like a clearing uh, and evisceration, if you like, of the established supposedly stable institutions of church and state at, at one stroke. And so people were cast adrift then to try and make sense of the implications of that. Um, and in particular, what, what it meant in terms of their worldview. Um, up to that point, as you correctly say, um, uh, Western Christian theology and thought were very much uh, accommodated to, some people would say, uh, compromised by the Enlightenment um, because it, it um, generated a convergence between um, 
Christianity and the idea of progress. Uh, by that by that point in the uh, 18th century, the 1700s, uh, what was the, what was at what point was view, views of millennium millennialism? What point had they reached at that stage? Uh, well, that that would require a, a kind of a survey of the development of that uh, from the early Christian period. Uh, we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. My essential point here is to say that by the 18th century, we are talking about a post-millennial view, uh, and that very easily lent itself uh, and accommodated itself to the prevailing rationalism of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. and the whole idea of progress uh, as part of the Western em- enterprise. Uh, and also uh, the, the emphasis on uh, human ability uh, to uh, establish progress and uh, achieve um, uh, goals uh, for humanity. There was less emphasis on the divine. There was less emphasis on revelation as a means of progress. And therefore, uh, the church was compromised. Western religion was compromised to the Enlightenment. Uh, and when the French Revolution came, therefore, it came like a crash on top of that uh, compromise. Mm. Uh, no longer could Western Christians believe uh, that uh, humanity or human beings were the end of all things, that progress uh, was achievable by human means, mm-hmm. uh, they had all the evidence in front of them as to what that could lead to. Right. Um, it's interesting because it seems like from you know my studies of the Enlightenment is what you, you at least initially you have this I was amelioristic optimism is what it's called where uh, there is this idea of just I guess linear progress and then um, but it seemed because religion was now took a secondary spot or, a, you know, went to the back burner and, and re- religion be- goes to the back burner and is now subject to reason. Um, I guess the classical idea of a cr- return of Christ in a, the old, the old Christian telos is kind of out the window, so to speak, for some time. Um, but I guess when the Napoleon's, re- you see, so are you saying when Napoleon's revolution comes, it gets them to maybe not give up the ideas of progress, but now see it in light of a, of a post-millennialism or maybe marrying it to um, having more of an idea of, of apocalypse <laughs> or is that- Well, I think, I think where Britain and Ireland are concerned because they were closer geographically to Europe mm-hmm. and the United States uh, you tended to have more of an embrace of a premillennial view emerging in Britain and Ireland mm. post-French Revolution period. Uh, and that, that in itself bears witness uh, to the traumatic effect of, the, of that event on Western Christianity. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, as you know, uh, the premillennial view is, is essentially a negative one. Uh, it it understands that evil is pervasive in the world, 
uh, and that no human agency can counter it. And therefore, that the only uh, source of uh, resolution is divine intervention in the world. Mm -hmm. And so increasingly, in the post-French Revolution period, you know, um, there is an embrace of the pre-millennial view uh, in uh, the, the Church of England, the Church of Ireland, and, and some of the, the, the dissenting sects, the Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and so on, who, who see that uh, given the circumstances that the French Revolution has created, uh, that there's all the evidence of the breakdown of civilization uh, and that it can only be rescued by the, the coming of Christ back uh, to establish his kingdom on earth. Mm -hmm. So it is, it, it is no longer the, the, the kind of post-millennial view which predated the revolution, which had this positive uh, view of the human condition uh, of progress and so on, uh, combined with the scientific revolution and all that human beings could achieve. But, but that whole ethos came to a crashing end with the revolution. And therefore, there was, there, was less, um, there was less confidence in that to do that. Now, I did mention that the proximity of Britain and Ireland uh, geographically to Europe uh, meant that there was uh, more of an embrace of that pre millennial view uh, subsequently. In the United States, uh, uh, my reading of it is that the post-millennial view, which had essentially been introduced in the 1700s via Jonathan Edwards, um, that that survived longer into the 19th century uh, than it did in Europe. But equally, uh, also in the United States, you had the growth of a premillennial view uh, as well. So the postmillennial view or position in the United States, as I say, it had its origins with Jonathan Edwards, who adopted this view of progress uh, as possible within the Christian framework. Um, and on into the 19th century, even up to the Civil War, there was a continuing belief that it was possible to alter the, the defects of society for the better, and that this was humanly possible. People like Charles Finney uh, would be another example of this. The campaigns against uh, slavery, uh, the abolition of the, uh, you know, uh, alcohol abuse and mm -hmm. other social reforms all fit into that post-millennial view, this idea of human progress, the capability of human beings to bring about positive change in society. But of course, the Civil War, just like the French Revolution had in Europe, the Civil War in the United States uh, was, again, a marker in time, which demonstrated to people the limits of a post-millennial understanding of the human condition. So the the terms pre-millennial, because that's that's basically um, the the three, I mean, broader uh, 
classifications, so I guess, especially in the past several hundred years of how uh, the millennium, which I believe is in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, is interpreted. Um, now, what is the difference between, so for the pre and the post-millennial view uh, in relation to the millennium in that chapter? Um, the, what do, do, do pre and post mean? Uh, in relation to how the millennium plays out? Right. Well, uh, put simply, the, the premillennial view is that the second coming of Christ will happen with his return to earth before the thousand-year reign uh, stipulated in chapter 20 of Revelation 20, uh, the kingdom of God on earth, uh, which would be the millennium that basically Christ will return to earth before that thousand-year reign. Mm -hmm. The post-millennial view uh, would be, you know, uh, a simple reverse of that, that Christ will return after the millennium, after that thousand-year period, uh, after the world has been plagued and purged of evil. Um, and you can see readily then how that would fit in very easily with uh, the delineations of the 18th century Enlightenment mm -hmm. on, and some of the social reforms, that, that Christ will only come back mm, yeah. once human agency has done its work to rid the, work, the world uh, of evil. Um, now, those two terms, pre-millennial and post-millennial, uh, weren't always there, right? They, they were really only invented and coined in the 19th century. Okay. Of course, the, 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 the concept of them, the, the conceptual framework of pre-millennial and post-millennial did, of course, exist before that. Um, and um, it goes right back to the early Christian uh, period, you know, uh, because the the early believers in the church did expect uh, Christ to return pretty readily. Uh, that's the way they read it. Um, but from there, you begin to uh, lay out a scheme whereby um, that didn't happen. So what 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 did believers think then in the the, the second, third, and fourth century? You know, Jesus is not coming back. Uh, so how, how are we to interpret this 1,000 years? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what do we make of it? Um, and, and why does Jesus need to come back anyway? Mm -hmm. These are the questions that the church fathers uh, grappled with. Um, so the Nicene Creed uh, provides the answer to those questions uh, where it says that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and the dead and that his kingdom will have no end. Mm -hmm. In other words, Jesus will come again as a judge in order to bring eternal justice. And that then there will be the final defeat of the evil forces of sin found in all of those who have uh, rebelled against God uh, like Satan, right? Uh, so there was a, a, a kind of a doctrinal statement then uh, in the fourth century with the Council of Nicaea, 
as as to believers' understanding about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, we can talk then about uh, Augustine uh, in the in the uh, the fourth century and early fifth century about about his view of it. Now, for Augustine is where the um, that is where the in contrast to what would the framework that would later become known as premillennialism, uh, and I've read what you're talking about with some of the early Christians, Justin Martyr being an example of maybe a first century premillennialist, but it's it's not quite the same uh, concept as as what is often coined premillennial today, which might involve uh, dispensational thought or something. But um, getting going on to Augustine, who shortly after the Nicene Creed, uh, he introduces um, what, I, I don't know if it was coined then, his time, um, amillennial, but uh, that is uh, basically he had an allegorical inter- interpretation of the thousand years. Um, why did, uh, how did he grapple with the question of how to interpret the, the, the millennium? Um, well, he Augustine uh, basically saw that one thousand year period just as a symbol of the church uh, and its 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 existence on earth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that revelation uh, was not to be understood literally. But it was like a, an, an allegorical representation of progress in the spiritual life uh, of the human soul or even human institutions. Um, it was not really a prediction uh, about when Jesus would return to earth in a thousand years. That was just a symbol of the church age as it was. Um, and that uh, any notion of the millennium uh, is just a spiritual concept. Uh, that people have to understand understand it in that way. Um, and that any ideas about the return of Jesus uh, to reign on earth uh, should be seen more in terms of uh, judgment and the eternal age. So, so it was an allegorical understanding uh, that he articulated uh, and that people were meant to to see see it in spiritual terms, and okay. uh, you know, implement it in their lives in in that way. So basically, uh, what Augustine did was to put the brakes on this whole millennium millennial expectation uh, in Western Christianity, mm-hmm. and. Failed really for a thousand years uh, after Augustine. It was there was there was no millennial fervor, at least in in the in the, in the official doctrinal sense in Western Christianity mm-hmm. uh, uh, for a thousand years, roughly. <laughs> right now, there was I guess w- w- there was speculation. I'm thinking of uh, Joachim of Fiore uh, and even some of the reformers, but that wasn't. They speculated about end times because they saw. The catastrophic events maybe around them and uh and just the, the turmoils of their day but but that you're saying that wasn't so much um in relation to a concept of a millennium was that just their uh way of they did they just see themselves on the verge possibly 
of the end times, but it wasn't as far as the millennium is concerned in that it wasn't, they didn't really um, speak to or. Well, there were kind of jitters around the year 1000, 1000 mm-hmm. D. Uh, and there were also, there was also some movement in the year 1033. Uh, obviously, you know, coinciding with perceived a thousand years after the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was no kind of uh, official mm. uh, move within the Christian church uh, towards a millennial understanding of the times. Mm-hmm. We're all uh, fringe movements, uh, very narrow, very uh, episodic, uh, very localized. Mm-hmm. You did mention uh, Joachim of Fiore. Uh, He was um, a 12th century monk in in Italy. And he's not that well known, but basically he was the one who reintroduced um, the millennial understanding into the the mainstream of the church's understanding. Um, his idea was that um, the entire flow of history uh, mirrored the character of God. And because God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then history itself must be a Trinity. So he viewed time up until the point where he lived in the 12th century. Uh, into three phases or circles that were linked like links in a chain. And the the first one was the age of the father, basically the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then secondly, there was the age of the son, uh, representing the gospel uh, from the time of Jesus up to Joachim's own time. That was now drawing to a close. Mm, Okay. There was meant to be the age of the spirit. Uh, a period of peace and spiritual contemplation and renewal uh, in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, right, yeah. basically the one that introduced that whole idea of uh, a cyclical uh, movement within the Christian tradition. Right. It didn't. It didn't really go very far. Uh, again, just like the movements I mentioned, the fringe movements. Uh, Joachim uh, didn't gain uh, recognition within the official church. Sure. Um, So for a thousand years, um, Augustine's interpretation uh, in regards to the millennium basically prevails. And that's based, that's based, that's a basic church attitude. Um, But then, uh, especially in the time that the French revolution and the 18th and 19th centuries, you, we see a revival in fervor, millennialist uh, fervor. And you've, I know you mentioned in your writing how uh, premillennialism um, experienced a kind of resurgence in England due to the Romanticist movement. And I'm wondering um, um, what's the connection there? What was it about the Romanticism? I guess that's roughly, I mean, it's it's close proximity time to the Napoleon right. during it, but, but what is, um, what's the connection there? Well, uh, in general, if, if one understands the Romantic movement as one that arose subsequent to the French Revolution, 
with with its emphasis uh, on emotion rather than reason, mm-hmm. uh, then that's certainly a connection with uh, a premillennial movement rising in the early uh, decades of the 19th century. Um, in the sense that, uh, backtracking a bit, if we see the Enlightenment as an age of rationalism and and so on, uh, that came to a crisis conclusion with the French Revolution. Uh, rationalism was no longer uh, current. It was no longer reliable because to all intents and purposes, people saw the result of what rationalism led to. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there was a, a reaction against it in the form of the Romantic uh, movement, uh, a greater emphasis on emotion uh, and experience uh, as the determinants uh, of people's self-understanding. Yeah. And mystery to an extent, too. And right? mystery, yeah. uh, the fantastic, the strange. Right? One, one example of that would be uh, the Romantic's uh, the poets like Wordsworth and so on, going out into the countryside uh, and discovering uh, folk folklore, how the ordinary people lived in reaction to the emerging industrial cities, right? So th- there was this desire to make contact with the unusual, the strange, the folkloric, uh, the ordinary. Uh, in an emotive and experiential way. Mm-hmm. So how does all that tie in then uh, to premillennialism? Well, as I mentioned already, uh, the premillennial understanding of uh, contemporary events was that evil was rampant in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had taken many forms uh, come out of the tragedy of the French Revolution. Uh, the institutions of church and state were being questioned. Uh, there was violence in the countryside and in the cities. Uh, there was the rise of a dictator like Napoleon, uh, who to many observers was the Antichrist. Um, so how were people to be rescued from, from all this? They could no longer rely on human agency. To, to solve these multiple problems. All people's desire was put into divine intervention and that that should happen sooner rather than later. And so that, that element of the miraculous, the extraordinary, the dramatic, the fantastic within premillennialism matches what was happening in the romantic view yeah um that i was i was curious about that i i, I can definitely see that um because in premillennialism there's it's to me it's more of a uh i guess uh dramatic um more of a crisis oriented uh theology than maybe post-millennialism post-millennialism um which basically sees everything on a or the potential of things being on a good track towards something. Um, yeah, yeah. But- I think uh, premillennialists are typically negative. Mm-hmm. They rely on divine agency. Postmillennialists are more positive about the human condition, 
and tend to rely on human agency uh, as the modus operandi to gain progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so you speak about a, uh, in the, the chapter from uh, the chapter from uh, trauma and survival in the contemporary church, you speak about a, or you write about a pastor named uh, uh, or a presbyter in the Church of Ireland, which is Anglican. And of course, um, as many know, Ireland is a very Catholic country. So Protestantism was always kind of, even in, a, in an official status, was always kind of um, institutionally vulnerable, uh, to say the least, or maybe even marginalized. Um, but uh, kind of getting into kind of the Irish Protestant history of, of this time period that we're now talking about, you spoke of a um, presbyter uh, pastor named William uh, Hallis, H-A-L-E-S? Hales. Hales, okay. Yeah. Hales. I trust my instinct to pronounce that. That's what, the way I was going to pronounce it the first time. But yeah. So uh, William Hales, uh, in he was an example of someone who interpreted the book of Revelation in light of Napoleon's conquests. And he saw, uh, I guess, um, some contents from the book of Revelation, I believe in the like the ninth chapter with the woes uh, and the certain number of woes. And he, he connects them to what he sees uh, contemporaneously with Napoleon. And um, what, what's the connection he drew with uh, what Napoleon was doing in Europe? Um, well, as an introduction, let me say that um, uh, the uh, Anglican Church of Ireland um, was an anomalous institution in the sense that um, it was the established church, right? That means that it had uh, the backing of the state uh, for its institutional life. It was the established church. Uh, But the fact was that uh, Protestants uh, were a minority in Ireland. So right from the 16th century, there was an an inbuilt element of apocalypticism in the sense that even though you were the established church and you were legitimate in that sense, you are yet a minority. Mm -hmm. And tension that tension between those two things inevitably uh, allowed an apocalyptic fervor to perpetuate itself within uh, Protestant ranks in Ireland. Um, To the specific question then about William Hales, he is the prime example uh, of an Anglican uh, clergyman in the 1790s, post-French Revolution, who's trying to understand the signs of the times uh, in relation to what is happening in Europe uh, with the situation of Protestants, Church of Ireland in particular, uh, as a minority uh, on the island of Ireland. And so he sees, uh, when he tries to apply uh, the circumstances of the times to situation in Ireland, he sees, as you say, uh, an application of 
the woes of the book of Revelation. And number one, he sees the execution of uh, Louis the, uh, the 16th in 1793. And secondly, the granting of a relief act to Catholics in Ireland as representing uh, the advent of the end times. Uh, he sees that convergence between the execution of Louis, King Louis in France, and the granting of uh, relief uh, from the penal legislation that Roman Catholics had been under in the 18th century, mm-hmm. as that convergence that was a sign of the times that the end was near. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, Protestants are on edge uh, in Ireland in the early decades of the the 19th century, even though uh, there is a concerted effort uh, to improve on the material fabric of the church. More uh, church buildings are erected. There are more glebe houses. uh, There's greater residence, as opposed to absenteeism on the part of rectors in their parishes. Uh, the whole material and human resource element of the church begins to improve. So ironically, yeah, uh, this is happening at that time as well. Right. A very viable institution uh, at the time, or an improvement in the viability, but uh, nevertheless, things going on. What are, we're, and you mentioned some of the other things going around them. The uh, Temporalities Act in 1833, which I know has a connection um to the Oxford movement, it upset some in the church in England too. And of course uh, that led to the Oxford movement, but also that had a, uh, an effect that contributed also in a way to the church of Ireland. Uh, and why was, what was it about that act that upset some in the church of Ireland so much uh, and maybe contributed to this, epo- uh, this, this, this feeling of, Th- not threat, but just that the, that the end is near. Yeah, it's one of a number of factors that uh, if we we bring into play here what we talked about earlier, the whole notion that uh, the premillennial understanding of, of the ecclesial landscape, let's say, uh, was predicated on the fact that evil was manifest all around. Mm-hmm. That no solution could be found to it than divine intervention. So if you were uh, an Anglican Church of Ireland uh, person in the 1820s in Ireland, you saw uh, the increasing democratic popular demand for complete Catholic emancipation, which happened in 1829. Uh, You saw the, the... Uh, National Education Act of 1821, which diminished Anglican control over education. You saw the Church Temporalities Act of 1833, which reduced the number of bishoprics in Ireland substantially. And and therefore, it represented an attack on the administrative structure of the church. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see how uh, you know the the status of the church is being undermined by the very state that supposedly was there to support it, you can find multiple examples of that as well. So there was a crisis of confidence mm-hmm. uh, 
in the uh, Protestant uh, polity in the 1820s and 30s from multiple sides where they saw their position being attacked. And naturally, this led them into a belief that this was the end. This sure. was the apocalypse. Uh, this was the millennium. Uh, and you could expect uh, divine intervention uh, uh, to happen at any time. Yeah. There's a surge of a surge of interest in prophecy, millennialism, end times, and apocalypse in the 1820s and 30s uh, in Ireland. And I do write a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, they they I guess they they saw evil at work and manifests manifesting in these things happening around them. Um, I should I should mention too there, Drew, because you you brought it up with the Oxford movement. Um, one, one, one aspect from, uh, from within uh, uh, Irish Anglicanism that also fractured its sense of cohesiveness was secessionism. Uh, and that is uh, uh, clergy and lay people uh, breaking away from the church. And the most, the most notable figure at the time and subsequently, uh, and important in terms of the development of American fundamentalism, is John Nelson Darby, mm-hmm. who was originally a Church of Ireland uh, clergyman, but because of the, he questioned the association of the church with the state as a debilitating uh, factor in its spiritual life, and decided then to break away. Uh, start his own assembly, uh, meeting for prayer and sharing the Eucharist. And it was out of that that the Plymouth Brethren was founded in Dublin in the late 1820s, early 1830s, spread from there to England and ultimately to North America with the the famous Niagara Bible prophecy conferences. Mm -hmm. And John Nelson Darby himself visited uh, North America uh, and spread his message of pre-dispensational premillennialism, which then, in the course of time, became the defining millennial belief of American fundamentalists. Right, and I guess more broadly speaking, a lot of American Protestantism. Um, yes, North America. Yes. yes. Well, just so, a reminder yeah, to us so, that. So the point I'm the point I'm trying to make is that uh, this incubus. Um, situation in in Britain and Ireland, and Ireland particularly in the 1820s, uh, generates this millennial fervor, and it goes out in many directions. And secessionism, John N. John N. Darby and his take on matters is just one, perhaps the more extreme uh, element that came out of that. Mm-hmm. And it, and it just shows that uh, history doesn't exist in a, these things don't, didn't, uh, what we have today didn't emerge in a vacuum. I mean, we are connected to these <laughs> prior uh, significant events in our history. Um, well, thank you for uh, taking the time to, to share about your, uh, your ongoing work. We look, I look forward to uh, checking uh, that. Uh, next book out the, the with the working title of 1825 the apocalypse in ireland i will be checking in to um to see when when uh as a 
as it draws closer to an official release. Uh, so we have some fun questions uh, for you. And I did send these to you uh, before. And so maybe hopefully it gave you some time to think about it. Um, uh, but so, well, the first one is what would your favorite, uh, your favorite biblical commentary on the book of revelation? I figure, I mean, I know you're a historical theologian, but, uh, or church and, and church historian as well, but, um, I'm sure you've, you've, you've had to, to read a, and just out of your interests, even you've read a lot of, um, interpretation, interpretive work on the book of revelation. Is there any particular one that you, uh, especially liked or enjoyed? Well, as you, as you might suppose, there's a vast literature out there on yeah. <laughs> relation. Um, I found a very good accessible introductory treatment in a book called Revelation and the End of All Things. It is by a Luther Seminary professor, Craig Coaster. Oh, okay. Yeah. The book yeah. is published by Erdman's and it's now in second edition. So that's the uh, revelation and the end of all things, a very accessible uh, introductory treatment. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, if people want a more kind of technical uh, uh, treatment of revelation, uh, Professor Coaster has also written uh, the commentary on revelation in the Anchor Yale Bible commentary series, uh, which came out in his volume in 2014. Uh, and the last one I would mention, uh, it, which is really in the genre of the theological interpretation of scripture, uh, is one by my colleague, uh, Joseph Mangina. Okay. He has done the book, uh, the volume on Revelation for the Brazos Theolog- Theological Commentary on the Bible. Yeah, that's a good series. Yeah. Um we recently had uh, uh, Dr. David Nelson, who was the uh, editor for Bre- Brazos for 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 a long time. Um, okay, that's a great yeah, that's a great uh, series. Uh, uh, so the next one, two good books on apocalyptic apocalypticism or eschatology that you would consider must reads. Um, <laughs> Well, again, uh, you know, there's a vast literature out there. Uh, there, there are big bulges in the middle of all of that. Mm-hmm. One, one could, you know, spend a lifetime. But uh, I, I would say the two most sensible works that I have read uh, are number one, uh, Richard Kyle, "Waiting the Millennium: History of End Time Thinking." That's InterVarsity Press back in 1998. Uh, the second one is uh, Frederick uh, Baumgartner, Longing for the End, A History of Millennialism in Western Civilization. And that's published by Paul Grave back in 1999. Mm-hmm. There was really, uh, uh, an outburst of books in the 1990s. Yeah, I was going to say they're both late uh, 90s. And, well, a lot the of this stuff decade. was written then. And um, yeah. if it's... Yeah. If it's it doesn't matter if it's that old, if it's still, <laughs> if, yeah. it, if it doesn't, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, the, the classic work when I was an undergraduate back in Dublin in the 1970s, of course, was uh, Norman Cohen, The Pursuit of the Millennium. Okay. Um, which is still in print. Um, and finally, I would say if if people want to kind of sort out all this business of pre and post millennium 
millennialism and all the issues around that. The most sensible account is by Stanley Grenz, The Millennium Maze. Okay. Interversity Press in 1992. I will uh, I will make show notes for our listeners of all these uh of these just for, as well as uh, Dr. Powers uh works too for them to check out. Um the last and this may be the most fun question. Your favorite movie or show with any themes of apocalypse or end times? <laughs> well, I may not I'm not going to give you the standard answer here. <laughs> Um, I don't really have a favorite, uh, but um, again, as part of this whole upsurge of interest back in the last decade of the nineteen of the twentieth century, back in the nineteen nineties, uh, PBS did a program called Apocalypse: okay. The Story of the Book of Revelation, uh, which I have looked at and found very sensible, very practical. Uh, a very um, <clears throat> clear, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a, a documentary treatment of the subject that doesn't go over the rails on a lot of it, as as one can so easily do mm-hmm. uh, with thing with titles like "Left Behind" all over the place that people are soaking in, you know. Right, right. Um, uh, and just lastly, then, I have been fascinated by uh, a series done by the National Geographic on doomsday preppers. Yeah, that that was very interesting to watch. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so in that, uh, maybe the, this this is a good opportunity maybe for you to give a closing word on the importance of eschatology, um, you know, because notions of doomsday and end times have always been in the air in our culture, uh, especially popular culture. Uh, Doomsday Preppers is kind of an example that um, I'm thinking of. I mean, even like a, the popular zombie shows or something, there's always a, the fate of humanity is definitely a, uh, a definitely sells, right? <laughs> the the yeah. possibility yeah. of us coming to an end sells in literature and media. And while it's all, you know, some of that's fun to watch and interesting, um, uh, you know, we, we, of course, uh, as in, in theology, we, we see end times in a different light. And, um, why is eschatology, would you say, why is this so important? And would you say central to Christians, um, to our faith and what we believe? Well, eschatology, as you know, is the doctrine of the last things, uh, the end of the world and what follows. And um, uh, for the Apostle Paul, uh, it was a distinctive theology, and it continued to be important in early Christianity. Uh, So it is important in the Christian life because of what we understand it to be. Uh, Christian eschatology is uh, our life in the time between the already and the not yet. Mm -hmm. I I like that, yeah. What do I mean by that? It's our life between what Christ has already done on the cross and the resurrection and what he is yet to do, the second coming to establish his kingdom on earth. In other words, it's all about our life in Christ between the raising from the dead and the resurrection and his return. 
And the expectation that is what is yet to be is the resurrection of all who have died in Christ. And the life of believers, what is already, is in Christ, in his body, in the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it is a key understanding that we situate ourselves in that in-between stage, knowing what Christ has already done for us uh, through the cross and through his resurrection. And what is yet to be, what is yet to happen, his return uh, in, in the future. He, he tells us that he will return. He does not tell us when, uh, but that is our assurance. The already and the not yet. I love that. Already and the not yet. Beautifully put. Dr. Power, thank you for joining us, um, joining me, uh, and joining our listeners who will be tuning in. I'm sure they will. Um, they'll be delighted with this episode. Um, uh, these are big questions. And I think uh, we, we explored them and uh, it was very interesting. And I look forward to reading more of your work as well. So um, God bless and take care. And uh, we will, we would love to have you on again in the uh, future, some point and uh, to check back in with you. So. Well, it's been, it's been great uh, to have the opportunity to talk about a subject matter that I'm passionate about. So thank you and for I've that, Drew. Drew. It's been a uh, lot of time uh, in that. So, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're happy for you to share. So, well, thank okay, you. God Dr. bless. God bless. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you later.